Welcome to Because of This House, a podcast exploring the history, impact, and significance of housing in Rockford, Illinois, and beyond. Because of This House is brought to you by Rockford Area Habitat for Humanity. I'm your host, Lauren Morelli. Welcome back to Because of This House. I am so excited to be joined by Brad Roos today. Super excited to have a conversation about all kinds of things related to housing and the environment. So yeah, I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, Brad. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. We're so excited to hear all of your expertise. So would you mind giving just a brief introduction of yourself? Tell us a little bit about you. Well, I was born and raised in Rockford. So this is my hometown, but I left for the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana after graduating high school and got two degrees in chemistry and environmental studies. I enjoyed it so much. And then I taught those subjects at Champaign Central High School for a couple of years. Then I went to Puerto Rico and taught in Puerto Rico at a middle school there. And then I came back and worked as a toxicologist in a hospital in Urbana. And then for 14 years, I worked with a faith-based nonprofit serving people with lower incomes in the Champaign. Urbana area. But then I moved back to Rockford in 1990 to work with Zion Development, where I worked for 25 years. It's a faith-based neighborhood development organization. It's a lot like Habitat. It adds in the components of economic development and really focusing on just one neighborhood at a time. In this case, the Midtown or the neighborhoods of Midtown, as we say, in Rockford, where we did about $25 million worth of housing and economic development work there over the time period that I was there. That's an impressive lineup of a lot of different things. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for all that you've done in the Rockford community. That's just super encouraging to hear. And like you said, it is pretty similar to Habitat's mission and some of Habitat's goals. So it's fun, fun to talk with someone who's aligned with us missionally. So Kind of shifting straight to housing, why are you passionate about housing and advocating for quality and safe housing for our community? Well, I've always enjoyed building. My first job, my very first job when I was in high school was working as a carpenter's helper. And so we did all kinds of small jobs and I enjoyed working with Don Carlson doing this and that. But I had always enjoyed building things even before that. Go to your friend's basement and make little boats and things like that. I always enjoyed doing that. To be honest with you, I'm also uh, too cheap to buy things. So I'd rather make things than buy them myself. So I'm a diet in the wool, do-it-yourselfer. My wife and I have renovated several homes that we've lived in, in part because our incomes did not allow us to pay for everything. So we did it ourselves and we're good at it. So that was fun. I actually started a housing ministry in Champaign-Urbana when I was working there. And it was called Creatively Home Maintenance. Very creative. Yeah, very generic. So we would fix up homes for people with lower incomes and we would do that for free, but we supported ourselves. This wasn't the only thing that this ministry did, but it became a big deal. We supported ourselves by having a for-profit electrical contracting business. So I became the lead of both of those enterprises. So we were doing home rewires. We were wiring up new townhouses and housing complexes and even did the electrical maintenance work at Parkland Community College. So we did a lot of work and it was good. So we were able to help a lot of people. In fact, a couple of times we had work days where we raised money and we built a house in a day. And that was a lot of fun. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. A couple of times we did that. Yeah. It was crazy. When I came 
back to Rockford from the Champaign-Urbana region. I started doing larger projects with Zion Development, and we did some renovations of four-family housing. The Midtown neighborhood is really primarily a neighborhood of multifamily housing. There's lots of it here. It was designed that way. It was less expensive for people when they were coming into this neighborhood over 100 years ago, 150 years ago, to live in an apartment than a single-family home. And so we started renovating those homes, but then also did some new construction, built some townhouses, did 12 townhouse complex. And then after that, we got involved in even much larger projects like the Longwood Gardens facility, which is a senior housing facility, and also the Grand Apartments, which is Rockford's first and I think maybe still our only permanent supportive housing facility for people who have been homeless. It's a remarkable and wonderful story. Our goal at Zion Development was always to get rid of the blight. You know, that was one thing because there was plenty of it when I got here in 1990 and also to replace it with new and more workable housing. And I think that probably the reason why it's just very satisfying, you know, to get rid of some pretty ugly stuff that's no longer functional and to put in some really attractive stuff. We always worked very, very hard to make our housing look good, you know, with extra plantings, put the extra bells and whistles on it. It'll engage a lot of volunteers just like Habitat does in order to keep it affordable. And also we spent extra money on the energy efficiency stuff. So lots of extra insulation, the best, most high high efficiency heating units that we could get and energy efficient design. There are programs, at least were in the state of Illinois, to help supplement that. So we tapped those programs and have always tried to do that. That has not always been the case in some affordable housing development where the cost of the initial development is low, but then the operating costs are high. That's just a killer for a lot of families who have low incomes, you know, and it doesn't help them. Okay, so my house is pretty, but I can't afford to live there, you know, that was a goal. And I would have to say that probably one of the thing that really began to impact me was how central, and you guys know this, how central housing is to any person's well-being. I first started learning about this when I started going to national conferences for the Christian Community Development Association. My very first conference was at Baltimore, Maryland, and there were about 1,500 people present, and they were all ages. And these were folks who were doing what I was doing, doing neighborhood development work, doing community development work. And some were just doing housing, and some were doing other kinds of social service, human service activities. First of all, I was stunned and surprised to the point of tears, to be honest, to see so many people doing what we were doing in Rockford, because I didn't know of anybody else who was doing it. Housing, yes, but neighborhood development, I didn't. And so these people were using the same language and, you know, it's faith-based and they were talking about why to do this out of love and compassion for other humans. One of the things that I think probably cinched it for me, after we had developed the Grand Apartments, which was 46 units of housing for people who have been homeless, so it's permanent housing with on-site social service supports. A couple of the residents were standing outside the building and just chatting and there was a guy that drove by and shot one of the guys. He just about died, but he didn't. And the consequence of that was that it was very upsetting because the residents didn't have any place to 
be when they were outside. We organized a little outing and we went out to a friend's farm out in the country who has a big lake and a house. And we had spent a day and people were fishing and we had picnics. And I said, anybody want to walk around the lake? It's about two miles. Well, I only had one taker. His name was Ed. And Ed said, I'll go with you. I could tell Ed was older than I, you know, and we're talking and we're walking. And I said, Ed, I detect an accent. And he said, yes, I'm Polish. I said, oh, really? Yeah, I'm Polish. He told me his age and I did quick math and I said, wow, you were born about 19, maybe 37, 38. And he said, that's right. In fact, my family and I were actually captive of the Nazis during the Second World War and were carted around Europe to work as slave labor in the potato farms. I honestly, I almost wanted to cry because I'd never met anybody who had actually suffered like that. So I changed the subject. And I said, so how are you doing now? How do you like living at the Grand? Oh, I love it. Why is that? Well, for one thing, I can buy my food now on sale and I can store it safely because I couldn't do that before. And so I eat better because I can cook my own fools. And I've actually lost weight. He had on a name tag that said the YMCA. And I said, oh, and so I have now time now. So I volunteer at the YMCA. So I said, that's great, Ed. And he said, oh, and I have a mental illness so I can keep my medication in the refrigerator and nobody takes it. And I also, I sleep better. And I said, you sleep better? And he said, oh yeah, I sleep better because you can't sleep in the shelters. Nobody sleeps in the shelters because there's always a baby crying or somebody coughing or people talking. So I sleep way better now. And so I feel like I'm a lot healthier. And I thought, holy cow, you know, housing is way, way more than sticks and bricks, right? I was so impressed by that. I also understand a lot better when people are empowered by the improvement of their neighborhood. And I think you guys have seen this too. It changes them. We would have resident council meetings once a month. And we had managed to do some things in our neighborhood, develop some new housing. We planted some trees in the parkways and got some new sidewalks. Always a big deal. It makes the neighborhood look a uh, lot crisper when you've got new sidewalks. And finally, one of the mothers said, you ain't never going to get anything done in this neighborhood till you get rid of that adult bookstore. Well, I was set back. How unappreciative, me and my privilege. So it turned out three months later, my good friend and the pastor at Zion Church, we're driving down the street and we're looking at that adult bookstore that the lady mentioned. And one of us said, what if we just bought the building? And then we let it go at that. Well, not very many weeks later, Denver gets a phone call and it's the owner of the building out of the blue, out of the blue. And he says, my wife and I want to sell the building. We're embarrassed to own it because of the business that's there. Their lease is coming up. If you buy it now, you can put them out. Short story, we did. Did a terrible job of fundraising, lost money in the process, got rid of the adult bookstore. But it changed the way the neighbors looked at themselves and what we were all doing. It empowered them. They realized that their voice was heard. And that changed them. And the other thing that changed them was that getting together, they got to know each other. And so they began to share with each other and they knew who was in the neighborhood and who was not. The social fabric of the neighborhood began to get knit together. If there's one thing I've learned in my faith walk is that faith always calls us into community, away from individualism and into community with each other. And so anytime we can underwrite that, whether it's in neighborhood development or housing development or tenant meetings, resident council meetings, it's a good thing and it's a necessary thing. So I got pretty fired up about doing housing and neighborhood development work. And I think a lot of it was because I found other people who were also fired up about it and showing me and others the really dramatic impact of what you can do. I think maybe nothing more than housing 
and the accompanying community development work that you do. And by that, I mean developing community among the people in the neighborhood. I'm not sure that very much is more important than that. I think that is one of the most powerful things you can do. I mean, even the way you kind of spoke into that through that one resident's story of just how many different categories of your life is impacted by where you live and what the conditions are like in your home. It truly is amazing. I think a lot of us don't think about that. Yeah, I think also mitigating some of the health stuff. I should have mentioned that. Zip code 61104, where I live and where Sign Development works, was named as one of the top zip codes in terms of lead poisoning incidents of children. And I saw that firsthand. There were a couple of families that had to have their children treated for lead poisoning. That involves a painful process called chelation. And it's not pretty. It's not a good thing. And of course, there's the long-term mental effects of lead on the brain of developing humans. So just getting rid of some of that stuff and safe and efficient housing, not to mention cheerful. I mean, something that you can come home to and say, ah, I'm glad to be home as opposed to I can't wait to get out of here. Big factors. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all that. It's powerful to hear. And I think sometime we might have to have you back to talk about some of the other things we can't fit into the time, right? (laughs) But I also want to hear about your passion for the environment, which you kind of touched on a little bit with creating efficient housing. Yeah. How did did that passion start? Was it as a result of your work with housing? Was it something else? Tell me about that. Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts. That's where all the good stuff begins. Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. North of the Minnesota into Canada in the Quetico Provincial Forest, which our scout troop did every year, taught me what a beautiful, untouched, kind of pristine environment was like and how to respect it. And then occasionally, you know, you're out there, you're paddling along the waters as clear as glass and you can drink the water right out of the lake and there's nothing but clean rocks and pine trees and clean air and blue skies. And and then you see a milk jug floating along. You think, what the heck? How did that get up here? You know, you know, kind of outrages you. You think that's not right. That shouldn't happen. So that got me started. And then I uh, was in school, was in undergrad and grad during a period of time when a book called The Population Bomb came out by Paul Ehrlich. And that was about how if we don't solve the population growth rate, which is unsustainable. We're going to run out of food and space and things like that. So that was troubling. In addition to that, we were beginning to see the impacts of environmental pollution at that time. So I began to become aware of that. When Sue and I were married, we came back from Puerto Rico in early 1974, and we came back to Champaign-Urbana in our little Ford Maverick with everything we owned in the back seat and the trunk, 10 bucks and a quarter of a tank of gas on a Saturday night before a gasless Sunday, which some people may remember, you could only buy gas at the gas station based on your license plate number. If your license plate number was odd, you could get it on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If it was even Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, no gas was available on Sunday. You couldn't go to the gas station on Sunday. And Jimmy Carter got a lot of flack for telling people, turn your thermostat down and put on a sweater. People didn't want to hear it. But I knew instinctively that that was the right thing. I remember an environmental studies class in grad school in which the professor pointed out that we're perfectly willing to pay for a product for its cost of production on the front end, but not for its disposal. So consequently, we produce all of these things that we can't get rid of. That's not just plastic. 
but that's greenhouse gases. So the more I learned, the more serious I got. We built a passive solar addition on our home because I became very interested in solar back in the middle 70s. And I became a card-carrying member of the American Solar Energy Society at that time. I've been one since then for about 50 years. And not only did that work beautifully, but it also taught me how really straightforward it is to do some of these things that cut down your use of fossil fuels. The more I learned, though, about all of the environmental stuff, you can't miss it. I mean, the West is burning and the East is drowning. It's not at all a pretty picture. And there's no end in sight to this uh, unless we do the right thing. So both residential and commercial housing is probably responsible for about 20% of our greenhouse gas emissions. But if you think about the electricity that we use and then the natural gas and the fuel oil and so on to heat our homes, that's a big chunk. That's about 13% but also the construction materials. Concrete itself is just not good for the environment. First, we have to dig it up. Then we have to haul it. Then we have to basically burn it. And the process of burning calcium carbonate produces carbon dioxide. It releases carbon dioxide from the rock. And then, of course, we have to heat it up to do that. And then we take the cement powder and we have to transport that. And then we add rocks and sand to that. And then we have to transport that. So concrete is probably responsible, I've read some estimates of between 4 and 6% of greenhouse gases alone. We've got to do better there. In addition to that, in neighborhood development work and in community development work, we're all learning about smart cities and smart neighborhoods and smart houses. So it's not just energy efficiency, it's also where you put the stuff. And urban sprawl, you know, when a city grows out radially, that's the square of the radius, right? And that means that the fire protection, the police protection, the infrastructure, the sewers, the water lines, the electrical supply lines, they all have to cover an increasingly large area, whereas a more vertical development strategy is more efficient. And also, you want neighborhoods and cities that are much more walkable. Then there's the health and the well-being part. So if we do a good job of developing our housing, like we were talking about before, you know, you get that health bump. People are healthier for all those reasons that we just talked about, including access to fresh fruits and vegetables, because we've planned for that. People who live in urban environments in Walkmart are on average six pounds lighter in weight than people who live in suburban areas. Many suburban areas don't have sidewalks. They just drive. Those are just some of the reasons why I care about that. Right. It's so interesting how it is truly all connected. It all fits together like this puzzle. One action that we take is going to have all these consequences that affect all these other people and places. And so it's so, so important for us to learn about and be aware of. And so kind of the next place I want to take us is some action steps. How can our listeners who are hearing all of this, you know, we've all been hearing about the climate crisis. We've all been hearing about the importance of housing. But what are some ways that people can get involved in either advocating for housing and environmental awareness or taking steps themselves? What are some ways that you would invite them to consider? So let me lay a little groundwork here first, if you don't mind. One of the things that you know, you learn when you're in the not-for-profit world and where money is scarce and everything is we should collaborate wherever possible and avoid what they call the duplication of services. That's a poisonous word. Okay, well, the new thinking goes beyond that and it's called collective impact. Collective impact is a, actually a strategy that was developed at Stanford. We've had some training. People have been trained in collective impact thinking and strategic planning by the Tamarack Institute from Nova Scotia in Rockford. The Northern Illinois Center for Nonprofit Excellence brought in trainers and have trained about 70 people in leading strategic planning and collective impact. Now, it sounds simple, but here's the deal. When you're in silos, 
That's not a good thing. So solutions to problems that are socially and mechanically complex require collective impact. And that's where organizations and enterprises share the agenda. That doesn't mean they actually sort of just do similar things. No, they share the same agenda and they're working toward the same goals that are measured with metrics. They're in regular communication with each other about how their programs and projects align. So I guarantee you that neither Habitat nor Zion Development nor me or anybody else is going to do this on their own. This requires a community, collaborative, collective effort. We should all be looking collectively at what we are doing. So you ask what people can do, go to the Greentown Conference in November in Rockford, because this is our chance as a community to develop a community-driven, holistic sustainability plan. Honestly, I did not know about these things until 2016 when I went to Dubuque, Iowa, to a conference on growing sustainable communities. I thought this would be a refresher for the old environmentalists here. Oh, my gosh. Communities are developing these holistic sustainability plans, large and small communities. Little Marshalltown, Iowa had one. Dubuque is like the stellar sustainable community in all of Iowa by metrics and other communities like Grand Rapids and South Bend and Ann Arbor and Aurora and Elgin and Madison and Toledo, Ohio, and hundreds, if not thousands of other communities are developing holistic sustainability plans that pay attention to people, profit, and planet. And they're using these plans to organize their entire community and all their community projects around what meets those criteria for making our community more sustainable. And I was stunned. I was stunned at this. And so we brought that to Rockford. So that's going to happen. And you can go to the greentownconference.com website or just contact me at Sustain Rockford and I'll direct you. You should go. People should go. People should support it with their gifts because that will show that this is truly growing in community support. We want as many companies and organizations, not-for-profits. Habitat is a sponsor. We're grateful for that. And so is the city of Rockford. And so is the county of Winnebago and about 50 other entities right now and growing. We've got to do this. People, profit, and planet. we got to do this all together. We don't move without all of those things being taken into consideration. I have to say that is probably the best thing that people can do in a collective way. Do the individual things. Recycle your stuff. Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. We have to begin thinking in those terms. Everything that we do has an environmental impact on us and on our neighbors. This is so important and so interesting. I think it is always great to talk about these things, but what a tangible next step for us as a community. That's so exciting to hear that that's the direction we're heading. That's amazing. I want to add that people in the community, many businesses, many not-for-profits, Many governmental entities are already doing spectacular things. But the thing is, is that they may be doing them in isolation or without other people recognizing it and appreciating it. Our wastewater treatment facility, which is newly named the Four Rivers Sanitation Authority. First of all, their administrative offices are in a lead bronze building, so it's just wonderful. And if you walk in the door, what you'll see is an aquarium full of the 23 species of fish that are native to the Rock River, which is pretty amazing, by the way, in itself. And then you find out that they work hand in glove, for example, with Aqua Aerobic Systems, which is an international company specializing in water treatment. 
They work all over the world. And the combination of those two is one of the best in the world. Amazon has some of the most aggressive goals in terms of sustainability of any company I've seen. They are really out front there with those goals. Their plan is to be flying non-fuel operated jets by about 2040. They have specific carbon footprint goals, greenhouse gas emission goals for all of their facilities and all of their operations. They know that they can do this and that they need to do this. And so that's very exciting. And a lot of other companies have the same understanding and they're doing it. In Rockford, Specialty Screw, a relatively small company in some ways on Hoffman Boulevard. Man, they've had solar panels for years. They have native plants around their building. They've reduced their solid waste production and their water usage. And they've done it because they want to be intentional. They understand that that's part of their responsibility. It's leadership. So collectively, we need to do these things. And people are. When they hear about it, I think they're very much more encouraged because a lot of us feel like, okay, so I go out and pick up the trash around my neighborhood and I recycle my cans, but nobody else does that. It's not actually true. We can all do better. One question I always like to ask before we close is, what did I miss? Is there anything that you want to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on yet? Right now, education is crucial. About a year and a half ago, I met with one of the superintendents of one of our school system. And I asked him, what's going on in your school system in terms of environmental education? And he said, not nearly as much as I wish we were doing. We simply don't have the curriculum materials. That was shocking to me as a former teacher. It's not for one of trying, but also they're finding it difficult to incorporate the importance of sustainability practices at all the levels, people, profit, planet, into their curriculums. I think we need to help them to do that. So we are inviting students to the Greentown Conference in November, and we are really encouraging them to attend. I want to see students stand up at that meeting and say, we're here. This is the world we're going to inherit, and we want to make a difference. And I think that's encouraging. It's a moral imperative for the rest of us. Engaging education in this is in some ways one of the most challenging parts, but it's also one of the most important. The other part is, and this is where I think what Habitat especially can do and is doing, is engaging folks who have come out of situations or are in situations where they have lower incomes, lower household incomes, and helping them understand, including language about sustainability in their new housing situation or in the development of their neighborhood. And I say that for this reason. If you are struggling to pay the rent or deciding whether to buy your high blood pressure medication or buy the groceries, it's very difficult to think about how can I be more sustainable? And I heard that from one of our neighborhood leaders in the Ellis Heights neighborhood. And he said, the folks in my neighborhood are focused on the immediate needs that are right in front of them. And it's very difficult. This is another thing that we have to do collectively. We have to include people in community and have those community values for sustainability right alongside of us so that people are not isolated. To the extent that we're able to do that, I think it's much more satisfying for everybody. And so we need to be covenantal rather than transactional. Thanks for sharing that. I think those are two elements or maybe two sides that maybe people don't think about. We're always looking to include everyone. And so it's so important to think through, okay, who are the groups of people that like we really need to reach and we really need to come alongside and partner with, like you said. So thank you for sharing that. Before we wrap up, where can listeners keep up with you? Is there any way that they can stay posted on what you're doing? Any ways they can track with the Greentown Conference? Tell us about some ways we can stay connected. Well, as far as the Greentown Conference, you can go to the 
Sustain Rockford site, sustainrockford.org. And there's a button right there. You can click on it and go straight to the conference. Registration is open now. And I encourage people to do that. That'll give us a quick read on how we're going to plan for this. This is at the Embassy Suites, downtown Rockford, beautiful site, plenty of room. And we want to fill the place. We just want to pack the place and show that community wants to do this. So that's one thing. As far as keeping up with me, since I live right above a coffee shop, Katie's Cup on 7th Street, I'm often there, kind of like living above the student union. So you can drop in and I'll be the guy with the white beard and some white hair. And other than that, what I'm doing is not as important as keeping up with what's going on in terms of our community sustainability. So I think the Sustain Rockford site and then the Greentown things are probably your best bet. When COVID lifts, if you want to come down and help my wife and me renovate a commercial building like we're doing to be more sustainable. It's the old home of Fisher's Potato Chips. So you could come down and help us do that. That might be for some time in the future. That sounds like fun. I'll keep it on my calendar for post-COVID and everyone else can too. (laughs) We had such a great time chatting with Brad today. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on this episode and for sharing your expertise with us. Like Brad mentioned, you can keep up with his work and register for the Greentown Conference at sustainrockford.org. Once again, thank you for listening to Because of This House, which is brought to you by Habitat for Humanity. Our producer is Kervin Thomas. Our theme song was written by Nooney, who is also one of our Habitat homeowners. The song, entitled Daydreams, was produced by Chandler Bolden and engineered by Neil Howard. Believe it, if you believe it, if you believe it.